Hello, I'm Jack Perks, a wildlife cameraman, and in my spare time, I host the Bearded Tits podcast. Every Tuesday, I speak to scientists, celebrities, artists, and passionate people about the natural world. If you want a laid-back and easy-to-listen show, then tune in. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that says howler monkeys, calm it down, turn it down a bit man, I'm just shout all the time, it's just tiring, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? I'm good, it's so nice to be able to say that on the show and actually have someone respond. Do you, I mean not that I listened before, Do you? did you ask? Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I can't you remember. You just didn't listen I to the show I can't before. remember. <laughs> did you just ask into the void? Yeah, usually. I'll be like, how are you all doing? And then just nothing. I'm good and you're good. So that's a good start. That is a good start. What are you drinking? What, what's your drink of choice for the beginning of the podcast? You've not got anything, have you? No, I have. It's a mug, have you? It's a mug of boiling water. Oh my God, how Sorry, I'll horrible. do better next time. I'll do better next time. Just a mug of boiling water? Yeah. It, why, why did you put anything in it? Because I've had, I went to, I was co-working in a cafe this morning and I had a lot of coffee. Okay, that's fair. You don't put a, like, a lemon wedge in it? It's This is late. You're exposing my laziness. What's your, what are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> I just feel for you. No one, you deserve more than just hot water. I'm hydrating. Boringly. That's true. What have you got? I've had to go for coffee. I couldn't stop yawning when I first came on here with you. Yeah. It was, it was horrible. Yawning away. And I'd never usually have a coffee at this time. But clearly, I I need it. So I'm going to have a coffee. Yeah. Um. How has your week been last week? How's your weekend? This is when we're recording. Weekend's been lovely. Um. I was just exploring signs of spring. Saw lots of toads shagging. Um. <laughs> lots of birds. Like, lots of, like, you know, when they're just, like, en masse. Yeah, yeah. Weird thing. There was some... <laughs> There's, there was like seven or eight of them, which were like their guts were hanging out and they died somehow and I haven't quite figured out how. So if anyone listening knows why towards, they'd be kind of like, a, I know that they've got toxins in their skin. So well, who's predating them? And if they are, yeah. they're just kind of tearing them apart a little bit. Um, and some towards were having sex with the dead ones. But I mean, all around oh. it was a really good nature weekend. Nature is disgusting. <laughs> it's it? <laughs> just fucking horrible. Just, it was right. We sit there and we show stuff on TV going, oh, look at the spectacles. Knowing somewhere there's a toad <laughs> in the dead toad. <laughs> exactly, exactly that. So it was great. Oh, dear. How was yours? Any? Mine was good. We were on the boat. We moved that, which is really nice, actually. I started practicing with my whittling knives. Any injuries? Nope. Wall gloves, mate. Did you? Because I'm just getting used to how the knives feel and kind of practice. I'm not making anything yet. Okay, so you're just carving the wood. I'm just carving a bit Make of wood, seeing what knife. That would be nice, thank you. Can it be a spoon? It can absolutely... I, spoons are my favourite cutlery. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Oh, it's just universal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. Isn't it? They've really made it around the world, spoons. Absolutely love them. Yeah, that'd be delightful. Thank you. I'll make you, I'll whittle you a spoon when I know. I've got to um, try and find some soft wood. <laughs> Lucy has asked me to crochet her a flyer Garrick crop top so I can crochet you something. A flyer Garrick crop top? What else, would, what else Lucy would Lucy Lapwing? That's thing I've ever <laughs> asked for. So, um, <laughs> A mushroom for each breast. So yeah, is that how you're going to do it? We'll reciprocate with gifts. Okay, cool. I'll buy you a. Sp- I'll make you a spoon for each breast. <laughs> Sorry, I was just matching the fly <laughs> You've garret. Mixed it. You've mixed it. I'm confused. Did you eat up. some fly garret before this podcast? <laughs> Only five of them. Um, brill. Great. Mm. Sounds like a nice weekend. This. This is the first uh, podcast we're doing together. Um, so for the listeners to let you know, we've got some things to do before the episode, which is nature news. We're kind of kind of bringing it back. It's something I used to do, but myself and Nida are going to share a story. You've got a story ready, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. So we've just been having a look at what kind of is happening in the nature, conservation, environmental world this past few weeks and share it with you snappy so you don't have to do the research. I guess. So, yeah, I guess so. We're just li- looking for what's happened, whether it's good, whether it's sad, whether it's challenging, whether what's it's caught our hopeful. Eye. Yeah, what's been going on last week. So um, let's dive in to um, our first lot of nature news. What have you got? 
So I'm going to start with a bit of a saddy one. Um, oh. And this is the news um, that I was actually first alert to by the wonderful Rob McFarlane uh, via his Instagram account, which is under the cover of darkness. Um, a few nights ago, Plymouth Council felled 110 trees, um, oh, yeah. ripping the green heart out of the city in his beautiful words. Um, and so, yeah, just an incredibly sad thing. It seems to be something that's happening increasingly. Uh, councils mm. removing trees that are of a significant age, providing, obviously, the beautiful fresh air that they do and the cooling provision that they have in cities and just lovely, that feeling of connection to nature, people that live in urban areas. Um, it's not the first time, and I know Paul Parsland, who's going to be joining us a little bit later on the podcast, as somebody that's been campaigning a long time for for trees and, and gorilla planting as many trees as possible is something that he does. So, yeah, really sad to see that that's still happening, but 110 trees is, is huge. It's, it's just so sad. Like, when you rip it out of an urban area and, like, or any area, but, like, they're so, they're so important in city. Like, even if, like, take the ecological side away from it, which is, you know, obvious for a reason why it's bad, but even, like, they just keep cities being real yeah, and alive yeah. and like there's so many places i go to in london where i'm like oh i'll meet you by you know where that little collection of trees are nice like, i will say things like that they're mm. such like they hold that important i don't want to just locate my friends via prep you know humans have met is yeah which prep <laughs> the one by the tree oh. <laughs> damn it yeah it's not interesting that the tree is a clearer place to meet than than a prep mm. but i mean you know for millennia we have gathered around ancient trees and in trees and on the commons that's what we've done yeah you know, trees have been planted by humans to show signs of direction, to point people in the direction of where things are when we travelled by foot and by horse. Trees are incredibly important for a million different reasons, culturally, spiritually, in a way to connect to nature. And the fact that, um, you know, a 100, 200-year-old tree can be cut down, but, you know, buildings have got more kind of preservation status. Mad. Yes, so, so what weird. else? Go on. What if, make me happy. Okay, what yeah, let's, let's pick it up. Right, okay. So this is something we've um, actually, me and you have watched together, and I watched the second one last night, but we got to talk about it, is the BBC's new programme, Wild Isles. Mm. We have got some listeners from overseas that might not be aware of this new show, and I'd imagine most people listening are aware of it. Um, if you haven't caught up with BBC, well, it's a mixture, isn't it? It's the World Wildlife Trust, it's RSPB, and the Wildlife Trusts have kind of grouped together to make a wonderful show david attenborough blue chip documentary about wildlife and ecosystems and habitats here on the british isles and it's a long time in the making literally four years and it's a long time us waiting for it i think we've had little snippets of it in the past and now it's here and we watched the first one together which was lovely and they pulled out the big dogs they did. all for the episode uh the last one did you watch one last night i did watch it last night it was beautiful it was nice wasn't it mm, it was so nice awesome. woodlands oh god the slugs it's almost like it's almost like you know i love british wildlife and have done for you know decades but it's kind of like re falling in love it's like reading a chapter yeah. of a book and it just sing into your heart it was just magic it was beautiful so if you haven't watched it you can catch it on sunday nights at 7 p.m and you can catch up with them on bbc iplayer but to tell you a bit more about bbc's wild isles is one of the producers he produced the grassland episode which is yet to come i think is actually the next episode next sunday um it is producer nick gates so here's him to tell you a bit more Why has a show like Wild Isles been made now after all these years and why has it got such high importance? Well, I think anyone who works in wildlife filmmaking has has wanted to make a series like Wild Isles. It's the reason that I went into making natural history television. I've always wanted to work on a series like this. But these big series take a lot of time and they take a lot of money and they just haven't been the resources available. So our co-series producer, Alistair Fothergill, put together this team of co-producers partnering the BBC with the RSPB, with WWF and with the Open University. And it was only as a result of that co-production model that we were able to dedicate the time and resources needed to showcase the very best of what Britain and Ireland had to offer. And it's so important because there's never there's never a more important time to talk about the issues facing the natural world. But the figures for Britain and Ireland are particularly damning. We're in the bottom 10% of, of global nature depletion. We have lost things like 97% of our wildflower meadows. We, we the, the, Almost all the rivers in Britain and Ireland are polluted. You know, we've got these scary figures. So it's critical that we take action now and, and raise awareness of what we've got, but also the state that it's in. What kind of spectacles can we expect from the series? 
Well, I really think that the, the the sequences that we filmed will genuinely surprise people. They will not believe that they have been filmed here at home in Britain and Ireland. Now, hopefully some of the audience will have already seen episode one, which features the orca hunting seals off Shetland and the white-tailed eagles hunting barnacle geese up in the Hebrides. These are world-class spectacles. They are absolutely extraordinary. But we've gone from everything from those huge giant stories to the little tiny macro stories, some super surprising macro stories, things like a species of solitary bee that nests in snail shells, um, the, the life cycle of the large blue butterfly, which has got an imp almost impossibly complex routine, the, the story of the little almage flies that get stuck inside the arum lily as part of its pollination. So we've got everything from the, the biggest spectacles right down to the tiny macro ones. And what we're trying to do is surprise the audience and wow them with how special pressures and surprising our nature is. The series is going out on BBC One at the moment on Sunday nights at 7pm but if you miss it just go to the iPlayer and search for BBC Wild Isles and you'll be able to catch up with the whole series and at the end of the five-part series there is a companion episode called Saving Our Wild Isles which will also be available on the iPlayer so please do seek it out if you haven't had an opportunity to watch them when they go out live. Right, okay, there you go. That was Nature News. Um, just two little snippets there. And in the coming weeks, I'm sure we're going to find more. There's loads going on because we're going into spring now, aren't we? There's way more. There's loads going on. It was hard to choose what to bring up. And I imagine that will bring yeah. heaps more news about what's happening in the world of conservation to you. I guess it's also important to say if anyone has any news, and this can be globally, it doesn't have to be UK, uh, you can email myself and Nadia into the wildpod at gmail.com and just share some news with some links. Maybe and info you're doing we'll something really awesome with nature and conservation that we don't let you don't know yeah. about and we can spread the word. Right. The other little segment that we're going to have on every single episode now is the much-loved and celebrated Nature Room 101. Uh, if you're a new listener and you have no idea what that means, basically, it's the vault of Room 101, but it's nature-themed. So we pick things from nature, from the industry, from the planet, anything. Could be a weather type, could be an environment, could be a bit of legislation we hate that we want. <laughs> what do you say? A weather type. Love it. A weather type? Yeah. <laughs> um, what should, what would, uh, no, not Don't. now. We'll do it in a minute. Don't. Let's open the vault. So... We did a shout out on social media and you sent your many and many a hatreds of the natural world to see if they can go into Nature Room 101. Myself and Nadia will decide. So let's go in to Nature Room 101. Right, okay. We've got a few. Well, I've got, I picked two from the many. This list is going to keep us going. So Nadia, I'm going to read them out and we'll decide whether they go in. I've got a feeling I know what you're going to say for I each. don't. Yeah, I don't know what these are. So this is fresh. So, okay, the first one replying to us on social media was from a man. I assume these aren't all his actual birth name, but Scott Staff's Wildlife on Twitter. I'd I don't imagine. Know why you just... <laughs> <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I mean, you're going to go into the industry if it is, isn't it? Um, so, well, Scott, Scott replied, puff adders for sure. Quote, they are not only aggressive and particularly deadly, but the way they squirm along like giant caterpillars is creepy as hell. Reactions? The, my, my puff adder knowledge is limited, is my reaction, but I'm immediately swayed by the description of the squirming. It feels like, <laughs> it, it feels like that is an uncomfortable thing to observe. Yeah. Don't know yet. What do you think? A absolutely not. No, they're not going in. Not oh, okay. for me. They can't. Puff adders are beautiful. Let me just see what one looks I like. I think it is also important to say here that Scott is from the UK. If I can go via his Twitter account. So not to be confused with adders. Yeah. I can't imagine how often he's seeing a puff adder. Honest to God, the stuff that they're trying to sell me under search item puff adder is very confusing. What's come like, up? Like um, Captain America models and Iron Man. Have you typed in Marvel? Sneaky puff adder supplements for men. Well, we all know what that does. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to assume we're talking about... <laughs> oh, good. We've we've come across Viagra. <laughs> Basically. Sneaky puff adder. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. What, what a weird way to use the natural world to sell something. That's a topic. That, why isn't that going yes. in room 101? People use no, it. Okay, let's leave that for another day. <laughs> so they puff are adders. I'm absolutely stunning. Yeah, I'm really sorry, Scott. 
I don't know how often Scott comes into close contact with a puff adder enough to despise them. But for me, no, absolutely. I, I love snakes. I love my snakes. I love adders. Yeah. Love puff adders. Brilliant. They're absolutely gorgeous. And they're always quite small, usually, I think. I endorse you, Scott, keeping away from puff adders personally. I endorse mm. you doing that. Otherwise... I think you can do that. Also, I wouldn't put them in room one one. It would be a nightmare down there. It would just be a room full of... Badders. Yeah. Very Indiana Jones. Okay, next. What have you got next? <laughs> right. The next one is from someone called Brenda on Twitter. Hi, Brenda. Um, Brenda quite passionately says, slugs. No amount of science will make Brenda appreciate slugs. It's the slime no residue. When you step on a slug in bare feet, you can feel it where it was for days afterwards like you've been branded absolutely revolting and an absolute lie <laughs> for days afterwards like she's eating a frazzle and she keeps burping up the flavor for that's days. niche that joke is it i've never done that oh no frazzle stay on your breath for weeks no slug i love i love it. so i have stood on a slug and killed it by accident and it remember remember it squeezing in between my toes Ooh. tell you what didn't happen it didn't stay on my foot for days afterwards because i had a this, good wash we have we have massively assumed that brenda washes daily oh, okay so maybe she doesn't oh so just given what happened on wild isles last night watching those oh. mating slugs those how could you not want them just dangling from your trees well, I mean, I did relate a lot. No, I'm not going to say. Oh, God. <laughs> no, that's such a crude joke and I'm not going to do it. I'm not. Pause. No. No, okay. No, I'm not going to do it. It's too much. It was too easy and I'm better than that. Okay, well, if you can tell me after we've recorded. Oh, absolutely. I can judge you in peace. <laughs> and if it's good, we'll bring it back for okay. next, next uh, show. Slugs. So I kind of, I understand slugs in terms of the national grievance towards slugs. Mm. Um, seems very particular for Brenda. It's the foot to slug <laughs> engagement rather than it's eating my lettuce. Weird. Yeah, that's actually that's quite surprising. That's the common one. Mm. In which case, yes, I've experienced slug eating my vegetation, but I cannot, do you know what? If you put them in room 101, they will find a way out. And I know it's, I know it's not a literal space. Yes. I know it's That's so space, true. <laughs> they will get through that hinge, no problem. We've thrown. I don't think we the can. Fence, they come back. Yeah, I don't. I think they're the one animal out there that and the octopus, octopi. Yeah, that will just always get out. Too smart and, and too. Clever. Oh God, I'm about to show my wildlife knowledge or lack thereof. Slug and octopus in the same family. So, so you said you were showing your knowledge, and your face is saying something very different. I'm not going to research it. I'm not going to research it. I have to Google it now really quickly. Oh, God. Because um, we will get we will get an email. Oh, God. Oh, God, it's gone to I Octopus know. Energy. There will be a man out there. Octopus Energy, again, another company using wildlife. <laughs> Just, it's, if you type in Octopus, the first there thing comes up. There can't be a slug Viagra company. So, um, yeah, mollusks, aren't they? They're all mollusks. They're all mollusks. There we go mollusks are going to be very hard to trap in nature room 101 so that's it we can't i can't put slugs in no that's fine no decision made gosh the power is intense have you always enjoyed this power no i usually play along it's, it's usually me voting for trying to get my one voted for so um okay so there we go those are the two not going in we will be tweeting throughout the month the other topic that we're going to have for nature room 101 so keep an eye on our social medias so yeah, I mean that was that they were animals with no legs or arms. So feel free to suggest something with limbs. We're open to mammals. Yeah, we're open to mammals. Um, so yeah, if you want to follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram, and you can watch out for the tweets where we're getting requests for Nature Room One Hundred and One. But let's close the vault for now. <laughs> right, we better dive into today's topic, shall we? So do you want to tell everyone what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, today we're going to be talking about nature conservation. Um, mm. Yeah, so, you know, we talk, you know, Into the Wild podcast, we get deep and enjoy the, all of the joys of nature in and of itself and our uh, kind of love or not love, according to our room one or one. <laughs> Weirdly, our, our audience hatred. seems to hate nature. <laughs> of mollusks. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll be... But but in the context of nature, it's it's inextricable for us to not talk about how it's conserved and protected. So we're going to be mm -hmm. talking about the idea of nature conservation and protection um, and our understanding of it and 
how it's protected here and how it's protected or thought of in different countries outside of the UK. Yeah, we're kind of just looking at it because the globe is in a weird, situ- dire situation with Oof. biodiversity and climate crisis. And uh, yeah, <laughs> the end. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, but it's weird that we're in that situation when we have models around the world that are all striving for the same thing. So how are we in that situation? That's what I want to know. How have we got to this state and what are we doing about it legislatively? Exactly. And what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Not for us to decide, just looking into it. So um, let's get ready. Let's start talking about this Uh really starting at the the roots of what Into the Wild is, we're going to be talking about conservation. So let's go. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the main topic of the show, which is about nature conservation. What is it? Um, To give us a bit of a foundational understanding of, of where we're at. We know, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast understands that Nature is not in a great situation. Nature is competing against a whole heap of stuff which wants to see it dead and gone, which is why it is dead and gone <laughs> in a lot of places. <laughs> From, uh, and that's why we're at where we're at. There we go. Thank you for listening. No, so I think um, we're not going to necessarily get into the issues of why it's declining, because maybe we will in a future episode, um, but we, I think we know that we cover it in all yeah. different kinds of topics. But let's understand what we're doing to save it. So I'm going to start. I've uh, got a career history and working in uh, the nature conservation sector, but also specifically environmental policy. Um, so how does it work here in the UK when we talk about conserving nature? So we have quite strict nature conservation laws, nature protection laws. The way that we do it here in the UK is a as a term that's being used increasingly, which I think is useful, is is the barrier conservation method, mm. which is we identify specific habitats and species to protect from damage. So it might be chalk grassland, or it might be otter, or it might be snake's head fritillary as the flower, or butterflies or birds. There are lists of species under various pieces of legislation which have an amount of protection. I won't go into the details of legislation, but basically it means that you cannot wantonly destroy those things. So whether you're a planner or you're a farmer, etc., there is a, a level of responsibility on you to not do that. So we have processes in place in the UK where if a developer is going to build something, first there must be an ecological survey to see what is on that piece of land and what could be disturbed. Uh, yeah, and that's our approach. And I think it's important to mention that that feels like, yeah, of course. Well, you protect that. Makes like, that makes sense. Like in a way, doesn't it? There's a nature reserve over there. There's like an mm. otter there. We can't just like kick it. You can't just build a Greg's. Can't just build a Greg's on the otter. No. Moving target. Um, <laughs> but that is one way of doing nature conservation. This is very much built on the Western idea that nature is separate from humans. And therefore, in order for it to thrive, we need to protect it separate from humans. So there has to be nature reserves where nature is thriving. And then we live in towns and villages where there isn't nature, really. I think that's very much how we see the world. Um, but it is failing. So despite our politicians standing on the world stage announcing to the world that we are global leaders in conservation the way that we study ecology and natural history is something which we have transported across the globe and the way we study it and then therefore protect it is how we feel we feel very normal and comfortable i worked in nature conservation 14 years and and from the majority of that time i didn't question it um and it's only since understanding what's happening in the rest of the world i was like hmm, why are we so separate from it humans being separate from it so that's how it works in the UK in a very quick nutshell, but it is not working. So the UK has some of the worst biodiversity intactness uh, in Europe. England is seventh out of 240 countries. And that means that with the species diversity, so the actual like kinds of birds and kinds of mammals, as well as the abundance is some of the worst in the world. Yet we have world leading conservation scientists and we have world-leading conservation methods and and ecology and all of this stuff. Where where are we on the list? Are we 123rd? If I remembered that right, of of, of the biodiversity seventh worst out of 240. That's oh, England, and I think dear. you know, like Scotland is like 12th, and but I mean, in, in terms of UK as a whole, the four countries are, are faring pretty badly. Um, mm-hmm. So there's an incongruence here 
there's a there's a cognitive dissonance which we've yet to address as a nation when it comes to our connection with nature. Um, and speaking to Wild Isles that we did right at the top of the programme, so much mm-hmm. criticism has been around that. It's like, we always talk about how amazing it is, but not the problems. And, and the reason for that, I think, fundamentally to the root is because we see humans as separate from it. So when yes, we tell totally. the stories of nature, we refuse to tell the stories. You know, you can talk about an interplay between orcas and seals, but we're not talking about what else is going on in the waters where the orcas are hunting? How is their ecology and their way of life being interfered by humans? Um, because it is part of the story and we're always removed from it, which is a which is a frustration from nature lovers and conservationists alike. But then sometimes conservationists don't apply that same thinking on themselves and the way that they do their work. This is me coming from a very critical space. Sorry. But it does go around in circles though, doesn't it? Because we kind of, you know, I've spoken to numerous people about conservation in this country, professionally and informally as, as well, just in, in, you know, in pubs having chats about it and stuff. And we go... Classic pub you know, we, we, chat. Classic pub chat. never never a dull moment with ryan in the pub let's talk about biodiversity guys where are you going um we we will say like you know we need to whether it's people having more access or just more information or connecting more about it and uh, with nature and then when we do we have to talk about the problems and it's always kind of like human related problems that have been forced on and then that kind of perpetuates that view that well humans need to be away from it then if if we've caused all those issues so it's kind of like we we want them we want everyone to have more i don't know what the right word is just ownership of it more respect for it but then Mm. because the issues are so deep built in with what capitalism have done and what like kind of advancement has done in this country that we feel like well, you can't even dare let us near it, as if it's like members of the public. Can't trust fault. ourselves. We can't trust yeah, ourselves. exactly. You can't trust holding it. It's, it's so. It's just a cog. It just goes yeah. round and round. This, it's yeah, so this hard to break goes it. Goes round and round and round and round. It is well understood yeah. that we cannot protect nature unless we learn to love it. But then we don't yeah. really want people to be near it, so it just yeah. goes round and round and round again. And it's bit. It's worth bearing in mind. This is a very Western problem. This is yeah, not so necessarily. It's, it's so it's so a Western problem. Mm, yeah, it's we could so go deep is. into that, and I'm not going to now. I don't think. But what I would like to bring in is um, a good friend of mine and um, yes. founder of Lawyers for Nature, which is an organisation looking at fighting for the legal right for nature to have legal protections on a level of human. So nature having human rights, which is something which is seen. There are examples across the world where rivers and places have been given the same rights as humans. And um, Paul fights tirelessly for the protection of trees and our kin in nature. And um, here is Paul. Um, I asked Paul to tell us a little bit about what is working and what isn't working with our current legal system here in the UK. Going into detail on the laws that protect Britain's trees and rivers and wildlife would be multiple episodes in its own right. But obviously we, we do need to beef up those protections. They are already far too weak and are a key reason for the destruction of nature that we are witnessing regularly and increasingly. But there's a a key thing which I think goes beyond that, which is we need better enforcement of the laws that we already have and which we might pass to protect nature because it's pointless having strong laws to protect nature if those laws are not enforced. And what we see currently is even the laws which protect nesting birds or tree preservation orders or laws that stop sewage getting put into rivers are just not being enforced. And serious crimes are being committed pretty much with impunity against nature. So we really need people to lobby and campaign for the government and relevant agencies like the Environment Agency and Natural England and local councils that supposedly should be protecting trees to actually enforce the law that currently exists. And in addition to that, if those bodies which should be enforcing the law are not doing so, then people need to stand up as guardians of nature to document these breaches of law and to try and stop them happening and to really stand uh, in a relationship of guardianship with nature. More and more people are doing that, and it's to be hoped that many more people will join in becoming a guardian for nature. That was Paul, and it's interesting that he brings up the fact that we do have incredibly strong laws. Like, you know, we live in yeah. a system of laws and legislation. We love it. We love some rules. But the weird we thing is... We love a good rule. What's the point of the rule if there's no one to enforce it? Yes. Um, 
so yeah, our laws generally aren't enforced. So you can't, you know, legally, we can't be polluting rivers and killing everything. But most of our rivers are in a poor condition. So like the law is a really blunt tool. There are laws for everything, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the reality. So it begs mm-hmm. the question, is that system working? So um, I would argue not. Paul makes a really good point there about actually we need more people having a sense of guardianship and responsibility because actually it is always people power that basically just lobbies and says, there's a law here, it's not being followed and we're not going to go away. We're going to chain ourselves to trees until you follow the rule of the law. And I was talking um, right at the beginning with Nature News about the trees being cut down. They did eventually like halt the cutting down, but it was way too late in the day because actually it was proven that you can, you know, there's there's legal protection for these kind of yeah, things. Yeah. And actually they didn't go about the right way of doing it. So, um, you know, we do have things like tree preservation orders, but you have to apply for them. And, and you know, so we have to stand up and be counted. We have to make ourselves responsible and guardians. If we're going to have this system where we have laws, someone's got to be watching the beavers. Somebody's got to be watching the beetles and saying, hang on, there's fewer here. It just has to happen because like rules with no, I don't don't even like using the word enforcement, but rules or kind of laws without that kind of monitoring of it and kind of like that kind of guardianship of that law and regulation or land or whatever it's saying, without that is almost more damaging than not even putting the law in place in the first first instant. Because you're saying, like by putting the law in and then not following it, you're kind of saying, well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if you do it. Like mm-hmm. it's against the law to put sewage in, but we're not going to, in the in the ocean, but we're not going to manage it. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. So it kind of like undermines the problem further. Yeah. It really devalues it. Yeah. 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 And and also what it does is it gives the public at large a, a false sense of security. Like, oh, it's all going to be fine yeah. because, you know, you know, you can't, nobody really can destroy, you know, because of our <laughs> wildlife and countryside act. <laughs> no one's really going to do it. No, like, we, it's illegal <laughs> to destroy a bird nest, but yeah. who's going to stop it? And actually without the public, and this, you know, this word eco-anxiety has been banded around lords. Yeah, I think yeah. eco-anxiety comes from a deep grief of a loss of our kin in nature um, mm-hmm. and a sense of hopelessness of not being able to do anything about it. But you can, you can do something about it. Whilst we've got this stupid system, we might as well fight for it and we might as yeah, well yeah. notice. So I guess head over to Lawyers for Nature, I guess as a website is something to do and, and equip yourself with the knowledge about how you can observe wildlife around you. What you can do if you see a hedgerow being cut down in breeding season. And, and all of these things, because it is only from our guardianship and responsibility that we will get there. I will say the other thing, my last thing on laws and uh, legislation, regulations and stuff, is that they, as well as kind of the monitor of them, they only really work if they've, I mean, obviously there are some laws like, you know, let's put about dumping sewage into oceans is quite, you know, one way of the spectrum kind mm. of going that's kind of that should be that's quite bad but when we look at kind of whether it to do with what people you know if, you, if you're regulating what um, access or something like that like if you're not involving the community and the people that live around that area then it's not going to work no it just and also it doesn't yeah we, we, we always talk about it in like a oh what if and and it frankly it doesn't it doesn't work. The system doesn't, even if, even if fundamentally you think, oh, okay, it makes sense on paper, let's go with it. Let's mm-hmm. be honest, it doesn't work. The way, you know, without community participation, without building into the DNA of how we see nature and protect it, without building in our role as individuals, it's, it's not working. And it's not just an assumption saying this. I'm, I'm going to use this as an example. I wasn't sure whether to or not. And I'm going to make this very close to home for myself. A lot of listeners will know I run a professional dog walking company and I walk on Hampstead Heath and there was laws or, or regulation coming in to regulate professional dog walkers. And, and our community tried to stand with the licensing going, we want this. We want to be pro- professional. We almost want to be regulated, but we want to be heard and we want to have a say in how that regulation works to help our small local community industry and we were ignored everything we said we were battered away we weren't allowed to attend any meetings we weren't allowed to have a say in any but when we did say to a representative can you carry our voice we watched it live on zoom absolutely not happen and then when the licensing's come in uh, many of us have paid for it and nothing else has happened we've never received any licensing it's not had any enforcement and six months down the line everyone's gone 
All right, back to normal then. And no one's got respect. You know, no. the, the thing is, there wasn't a massive problem. Obviously, it's an urban space. It's a shared space. It's not a nature reserve. But the majority of businesses up there do very well to be responsible. But it could have been better. Yeah. It could have been, you know, so many new companies have come into that space now. And we could have, as a community, gone you know, here's the time to educate here and say, did you know X? Did you know Y? But we're not doing it because we're kind of actively protesting against the scheme that's come in place. So I know, and you know, that's not going to be the case everywhere, but you kind of see when you, when you live something like that, you kind of go, this is how it happens. Mm -hmm. This is on whatever scale. It's like when you're ignored, you go, well, why should I care? Yeah. And I think that's what, well, now I've seen that. This because is how we're we human see. as well, right? So like, yeah. we're relational, human, emotional beings. And we we do make the world that we live in ultimately. And, um, mm. you know, your very human reaction makes total sense. Whether you think it's wrong or right, or people kind of think, oh, well, shouldn't have done that. That's what you've done. So that's the reality yeah. of what's happening. <laughs> that's how people behave. And you're a good egg, you know, I think. Thank you. Thank you. I think. <laughs> um, I want to bring. I want to look up some. Uh, look at some other countries as well. Yeah, um, let's let's, because... let's move away from the UK for a minute. What does oh, conservation? Can we? Can, shall we? Can we? It's a bit bad. Can we move away from? I feel the UK? like I just need to wipe off some of this bureaucracy before we go into the next segment. I'm laden down with paperwork. As the listeners will know, I I have really only looked at Namibia as kind of a community conservation model, really. But as d- in doing that, it has brought me into conversations regarding other countries. The one I want to start is, is looking at, We've myself and Nadia had the pleasure of very briefly talking with someone called Rajiv Matthew, um, who has a long career in conservation in India. And really interesting. We wanted to kind of ask Rajiv a couple of things. Is One is what does conservation mean in India? And how has that evolved over the years? Because, you know, India has a very recent history of a colonial past as well. How have these methods from a kind of real cultural inheritance, I guess, has that changed since colonial times? Is that How has it worked back into everyone's connection with nature? So we were very lucky to hear from Rajiv, who gave his perspective, his experience on wildlife conservation um, in India. So here's Rajiv. Hi, I'm Martin Matthew, but almost everyone knows me as Rajiv. I'm a wildlife consultant working on human wildlife conflicts, uh, innovative livelihoods, and on population management of wild animals. Conservation here is a blanket ban on the use of wild animals. It is fortress conservation with severe penalties imposed, even if uh, wild animals damage or destroy life and property and killed in defense. Even chasing an animal away out of one's own property is seen as hunting. Interestingly, there are a lot of indigenous people who don't see it that way. So there is a rift and such people are marginalized and criminalized. Traditionally, India had hunting, but the current Wildlife Act has completely changed all that. Despite the hunting ban and the strict laws, there is poaching for commerce, especially tiger and rhino. Bushmeat is fueled because of an urban demand. Habitat is being fragmented and shrinking despite the traditional difference shown because there is no stakeholder involvement. Wildlife has a lot of significance for the indigenous people. They are symbols, totems, and traditionally used in trade and commerce. Because of the changes brought about by law, that difference has given way to disregard. Parks have been declared people removed because of fortress conservation practiced here. So they too have lost that bond with that land. Societal and social changes have also taken place in the meantime because of this. The youth have no sentiments attached to the land of their forefathers. It is reflected in the ritual hunts by tribals. Uh, Earlier, only a few would go out to hunt animals. Today, thousands descend on the forest, kill every single animal they see. And if a monkey or a monitor lizard is seen in a tree, they don't think twice before either burning or hacking it down. All this despite that ban. There's a lot to unpack in that. There's a lot. Um, There's a lot, isn't it? And uh, do you know what? I just want to thank Rajiv for sending that over because I, I, I was listening to it on a bus on the way to the boat when he sent it to me. And the first thing that really took me by surprise was how much I felt it kind of a... It re- on some levels reminded me of how some things are done here in the UK. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that seems very much like the idea of having a wildlife act and fortress conservation yeah. is, is us 
superimposing the way that we see nature yeah. um, onto the world. And I think that's definitely a product of how we've reached across the globe to save nature. Exactly. Um, yeah. But what happens is that you cut the indigenous and cultural connections with nature and the idea of mm. reciprocity and then yeah. actually it ends up being totally worse because actually those indigenous relationships with nature are what we actually fundamentally crave and want to get back to and i don't know if anybody's listening who's read braiding sweetgrass which really describes the indigenous people of north america's relationship with nature is about reciprocity you mm. don't take too much. You always give thanks. You give and you take, and it's this cycle. And you know, I think what what is he's speaking to there is about that same relationship that's being crushed because of this wildlife act, which is everything must be protected and humans you no longer belong. You can't be here. Yeah, this isn't a thing. You do you do not live here. You do not you do not use. You do not you, uh, interact no. with it. And I think he was saying, and I think the religious aspect of it was was. So beautiful at the beginning because mm -hmm. it had that strong connection but you kind of see how it I, I don't know like over the years it's kind of just changed and, and it was saying about like the poaching numbers going up and, and the lack of respect for the wildlife and it just those kind of words were starting to ring true for of us here when we're talking when we were talking about earlier about access and not knowing how to learn people can't be trusted it just rung so similar. I wasn't expecting that before I listened to the voice note. Um, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? And it's almost like, oh, you know, so in the UK, we've been cut from our land for millennia, centuries. Yeah, yeah. There would have been a time when we lived on the land closely with it, alongside nature, and presumably not taking more than we needed and having systems culturally, spiritually, of mm. thanks and gratitude, not taking too much and... Um, it's almost like we evolved alongside all of the nature up until a point and it was all there and we were there at the same time. Um, and I feel like fast forward to where we are today where everyone keeps saying, people don't know how to, people can't name an oak tree anymore, it's terrible. And what's the solution? <laughs> Keep oak trees away from people. Keep, keep and then, and then like, you've got this. Can you imagine doing that with a kid and maths? Like, no, kids don't know how to do the times table anymore. Well, should we lecture them about maths? No, 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 just... Keep them away from Keep maths. Away. Yeah, they <laughs> couldn't touch a group. What about that protractor's shop? <laughs> no, no, pushing them away from it. <laughs> this is how Wally, the film Wally, ended up happening. Oh, don't. That's a tearjerker. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else was your takeaway from that? Because it was, I, I found it really interesting um, when he's talking about the level of protection, even on rodents. Yeah, was, um, it's just almost incredible. like a blanket no, which Absolutely seems, not, it's no. almost like we can't have nuance within yes. environmental legislation we can't have nuance we just kind of have yeah. to we have the law this goes back to time and time again when we have bureaucratic systems and law it is a blunt tool which doesn't mm -hmm. understand the deeper law the human law of that we are of this earth because we can't speak to it you know systems of oppression and power can't kind of legislate for that gentler side of what it is to be yeah, human yeah. and of the land. And so it's just like, okay, uh, don't hunt anything. And if you're chasing something off your land, that's also hunting. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <know>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, was drunk and, and, just interestingly, to say it. and interestingly, it's weaponized against us. So some people mm. might remember about maybe two or three years ago, Boris Johnson did a speech about reforming developed planning law and mm. mocking newts. He did a speech where he was just like, you know, we can't build anything <laughs> because of newts and laughing at the the stupidness of like you know a newt being found in a pond because it's it's got the highest protections in our land how that can stop a big development and cost us millions as a taxpayer and actually he he mocked it and actually it worked it, 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 because it is stupid mm. we've got to we've got this stupid system now where in india you can't kill a rat and in the uk you know millions of, or tens of thousands of pounds into like ecological surveying or relocating newts from one pond to another, even though that doesn't help the newts so that we can get development. It's actually weaponized against those that want yeah, to protect yeah. it. This is why it doesn't work. And this is why, you know, this this great message there from, from the Indians, again, is like, ah, they're kind of molding, you know, the, that that is molding into something that we can understand in terms of having a wildlife act. But actually what they had was traditional ecological knowledge, which just still exists at large within the Indian population uh, in terms of, I guess, it, it, people being cut from the land is of a, a shorter amount of history compared to us. I think as well, going back on the trust thing as well, that, you know, we, to say to not use any part of, 
you know, if we're talking about living living with wildlife, you know, there's going to be some use there as well. It just, it just does because that's kind of how, like you said, whether you're using flora that grows naturally, whether you're using fauna into your your life when you're living in, with that wildlife. To to say when we look at like India's fortress. Uh, kind of conservation saying like no absolutely blanket no on everything if you show some nuance and say well can that you know can that change should that change we're not we're then not saying yes on everything you're not going to the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. to say well hunting is always fine and Do doesn't have any want. impact on anything because we, i think in the uk speaking as a as a british person we have that initial fear because that's what's happened here yeah it's a law driven by fear exactly and to have that just respect and trust that when you have that connection, you see it. That's just not going to happen. I don't know. It's, it's as easy as just saying that. And all it's going to be now is just saying having the ownership. <laughs> I know. I'm good. There seems to be a theme here. I think you know when when we understand the value of nature, we yeah. protect it. When mm-hmm. we rely on a nut that a tree will produce, we protect that mm-hmm. tree at all costs. It is about reciprocity. We take yeah. from nature. And then we give back in equal measure. At the moment, we take, 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 and we don't have any way of giving back. Um, and it's look not how much we, we that... look after our mobile phones. Yeah, look how much we look after them because we rely on them. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think we realise how much nature provides for us. Okay, that's cool. So who yeah. else? Um, so that's really interesting in terms of like the similarities between India and the UK, but obviously that in more recent times and actually with India having an indigenous population and, and talking about the cultural, spiritual and religious importance of species, which we've lost. Um, but I, I mean, you know, we would have once had, it's kind of that kind of in-between space and interesting. And just to be you know clear, India has far more biodiversity um, in yes. than the yes. UK. So where else have you been? Where have you been um, travelling to? Where have I been travelling to? Uh, not literally. My MRs are not that bad. Um, we, I, I spoke to actually Bupe, um, Bupe Rita Banda, who was on an episode just before our New Star episode. So this year, one of the last ones um, from Zambia. Uh, Bupe is a youth representative in community-based natural resource management in um, Zambia. And Zambia, in kind of similar ways to Namibia, but in you know there are very different systems but they do share a lot as well bupe speaks wonderfully about kind of this sustainable utilization now sustainable util- or sustainable use as it's quite often called has some people kind of debating it always in the western world kind of debating it going oh is it just a way for us to manage what african nations or other nations around the world can do with their wildlife are we just putting rules and regulations to benefit on their natural resources or maybe Maybe nerds, maybe it's just a way of um, communities having ownership of their wildlife and looking to kind of grow that, uh, grow their development with their natural resources, with the help of Western science, absolutely, but with them having the lead and that being at the front of that development, so not being pushed on. So yeah. I'm just going to hand over to Bupe really and listen to what she has to say about conservation in Zambia and what that means and how that's evolved over the years. For a country like Zambia, conservation means sustainably managing our natural resources, be it fish, wildlife, forests, land, or even water. It means protecting and taking good care of our cultural heritage, and at the same time, promoting nature-based livelihoods, because we know that these drive rural economies, and this has been evident from the communities that are actually living in the game management areas, which are like a buffer zone to our protected areas, the national parks. So to a larger extent, I would say conservation also means developing and implementing policies that are responsive to the conservation models that are practiced in Zambia and also responsive to the needs on the ground. This means taking into consideration the story of our place as Zambia, our landscapes, our ecosystems, and in a nutshell, just how our protected areas function. Now, because Zambia practices uh, co-management, which ensures that communities are participating in both the management and beneficiation of natural resources, conservation would also mean thinking beyond the sustainability of these natural resources to include initiatives that promote regeneration, resilience, and 
ensuring that people are at the center of the natural resource governance models because we know that their livelihoods depend on the natural resource. We know that they bear the largest cost of living with wildlife, for instance, and when there's climate change, they'll suffer most, the most impacts from it. I would say in Zambia, conservation means mutual benefit for the custodians of the natural resources and also for nature. I like saying successful conservation must begin with those who live alongside dangerous animals because the value of these animals is deeply ingrained in these people's culture. Now, not every Zambian actually lives in the wildlife buffer zones, but we have 36 game management areas. We have 80 community resources boards. We have over 100 community forest management groups and about 50 community fisheries groups. Together, these some to over 200,000 people whose livelihoods actually depend on the natural resources that they live with and alongside. Now, these are the very people whose rights to manage and benefit from these natural resources were stripped off during colonial times. And in a few cases, they were simply evicted from their places of origin to establish protected areas, the national parks that we have embraced today. Yet these people never, ever forgot their traditions, nor their culture. They never forgot the tradition of resource use and protection. Post-independent, we have seen the restoration of these rights to manage and benefit. And thanks to the introduction of the co-management model in Zambia and other Southern African countries, this community-based natural resources management model has ensured that uh, communities are participating fully, and we have seen a reduction in poaching. We have seen provision of socioeconomic incentives from practices such as trophy hunting or carbon trading. At the end of the day, these lived experiences have kept strong the connection between people, land, and wildlife. This has enhanced their sense of stewardship and contributed to the positive conservation outcomes. Hence, we are able to boast that we have thriving and increasing wildlife population in Zambia, especially in some key species. Wow. This makes me so happy. I know. Can we just talk about this, <laughs> this sentence, this f***ing sentence? These people never forgot the traditions of their culture. And when the colonialists left, they just came back. Damn right. I know. It's it's mm. a real... And you know what? This, this that, that conversation with Bupe there, I am so privileged to have had with numerous people in other Southern African countries over the last couple of years. And... It's all that I don't I don't want to undermine what people say when I say they all say the same thing because it, that shows the importance of what Bupe is saying is you know these these people that live alongside wildlife and have done for god knows how many generations and throughout history and were kicked off of their land and then when you hear about this national park model of protection of wilderness, as people call it. And, you know, this has to be here without people. And whether that is a conservation model that we're using or just uh, attitude that a, we... I think it's more than a model. I think it's a deeply problematic held belief through yeah. white supremacy thinking. And 100%. It, it's, it's, it, it's a model that, of course, it's going to be born from this idea that there are, you know, there are hierarchies Mm. in people there are people right at the top like the monarchy there are people in power there are men who in a patriarchal system have more power than women of course this is going to be the product of it i mean yeah, yeah. in terms of this idea of wilderness i think it was pretty much con coined by john muir scott who moved over to america so the american model is an interesting one you know vast massive national parks that are lauded as like these amazing things where the idea of wilderness is an absolutely romantic pile of bollocks which is that humans <laughs> need to be away from a place to have these pristine habitats as though you know humans have you know you know we we talk about the importance of large herbivores managing places like nep where we rewild yeah. we understand herbivores shaping the landscape being like ecological construction whatever keystone type species humans were also keystone species who, who also protected trees cut some down managed rotated were part of the shaping of the landscape 
which is, you know, John Muir went over to America. Was he British? Scottish. Scottish. Yeah, went over to America um, and still is celebrated today as one of the, you know, the the creators of this idea of conservation and protecting nature, just killed tens of thousands, essentially genocide of indigenous people in North America, which we, we seldom talk about when we celebrate John Muir and, and John Muir National Park, which I've been to. And I guess it's the same, this colonial thinking, which always transported to Zambia, which people were saying was actually clearing yeah. loads of people off the land because they don't belong there. But because it was a relatively short period of time, the power and the strength with those peoples and their oppression in holding on to their culture and that traditional knowledge, you know, and they just reinstated it back in their sense of belonging. And I think it's important. I will stop ranting on about this, but it's really, because it is. But to anyone that's listening, this is like bit between my teeth. This is my, yeah, this yeah. is where I work and this is my passion. The way that Bupe talks about wildlife, and I think, tr- like, notice the difference She's not talking about nature as being separate from people like we do. Yeah. When right at the top of this segment, we were talking about okay, so in the UK we we have lists of species and they're the ones we look after. And there's and if <laughs> somebody wants to build something, this. we have this rules for this. And she is just talking about yeah. So basically, we just coexist in a mutual mm-hmm. relationship of coexisting and reciprocity. Of course, we take from the land, but of course, we give back. Two hundred thousand people in Zambia live directly um, on the land and with it and benefit from from that relationship, which is a huge amount of the population. And have that right to. And it's about the right. They reinstated their right to belong. It's not just doing it and how they do it. It's that they have the f- right. Yeah. And this is the right that we do not have in this country. Yeah. And with our model of conservation. This is what I think with our thinking as well in the UK, with conservation, it's so data, percentage, improve your point with this. Whereas give me the right first give me the right to actually science in the absence of human and soul and spirit is an incredibly terribly weaponized so much and to the point where i've seen it so much happen on on the social media kind of conversation about this all the time is where data collected by communities is used against communities to shut them up and i just find that so that's the bit that really gets me going like you whether it's talking about game counts or something like that and they go well they can't be right because look at the game counts and you're like they do the game counts. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what are you on about? So, you know, we work in science communication. We see how data is used and statistics <laughs> yeah. are used. I, I know firsthand that when data isn't in the favour of the comms that people want to use, they just yeah. brush them. They just don't use them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The other thing as well, that because you're absolutely right, is this attitude is that we do not show people living with wildlife and in these wilderness areas. It's never shown in anything that we create and what we do, the stories that we tell in the Western world, I mean. So when we're, whether we're watching nature documentaries and stuff, we'll see this, uh, we'll, it'll describe as this kind of, oh, the lions on this beautiful savannah. There's no people there. They don't show any people. And then it's, it's just this romantic, like you said, the, the romanticized view of what wilderness is. But then, you know, it's not abnormal for the UK to tell global nature stories about nature yeah. in areas where people live. But we've never seen the people. And we've yeah. never seen it. It's so really interesting. there's this, this, we forget that we don't, you know, we've been pushed away from our, our wild spaces or where we used to live and with wildlife. So we forget that other countries do live with it. Yeah. And then we we expect them when we do learn that they live with it, we expect them to live, live with it in the way that we see fit. And yeah. it's just, you know, it, it's just it's just not the case. So I think what Bupe is saying there is that they have their ways of living with wildlife. This is how they've done. They've done it for years sustainably. And it's, um, I think that that type of conservation for me just makes me feel so happy although it can be very challenging mm. it's so it makes me feel so it's something so real about it it's just you know when you like want a cup of tea and you have a cup of tea and it just feels right mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what that feels hangover tea hangover tea one sugar one biscuit yeah lots of milk should we do a summary yeah. i feel like we need to summarize um I, you know what? i'm gonna start with just defining kind of if you googled what wildlife conservation is this is what you're going to learn and then we'll kind of compare it with what we've kind of learned so wildlife conservation is the preservation protection of animals plants and their habitats by conserving wildlife we're ensuring that future generations can enjoy our natural world and the incredible species that live within it that is what you're going to get if you google it so the only bit i like about that definition definition is uh keeping it for future generations keeping it for future generations to do what with 
<laughs> doesn't matter as long we don't as it's have in that. any methodology for actually living alongside it and taking and giving so conservation wildlife conservation wildlife conservation is being preserved so people can work in wildlife conservation in perpetuity and also don't forget to <laughs> off away from it but give us three pound a month <laughs> for this panda but seriously guys sponsor a tiger um, today <laughs> but what I will say we is... Are, are we being really cynical and arsy? Because I let's celebrate... I know we are. Let's celebrate the fact that, like, we do have incredible naturalists and people that are deeply passionate about wildlife in this country. Oh, we, yeah. No, we have people that care deeply about this and, and care about our systems and do care about the cultural side of that. Like, mm. there are many people in this country that work in wildlife conservation that I've met that really have a grip with how we can be with it, mm. I would say. Yeah. Um, whether they're, they're whether at the front of it as they should be, I don't know, but and they are there. And there are pockets of wonderful places in the UK that people still do live kind of with the land. I do, in my garden. In your garden, yeah. Yeah, me and the ticks as one. <laughs> <laughs> I will say from the... A few people that we've heard from on the podcast and the conversations we've had. While there are many models of conservation, and this would be my closing statement. I don't know if you want to say anything here, but so all models do have successes in them. You know, it's a very easy way to conserve just what we see as wildlife. And if you really want to protect it well and kick everyone off your land, national parks do have a lot of wildlife in them. It's not a very ethical way. It's not very nice way of doing it and it has a lot of problems within but if you want loads of wildlife on one spot then that does work but i don't think anyone sits well with that but what i'm saying is that there's loads of models there are and models. they all have successes somewhere but they all have cons somewhere as well and it's accepting that not everything works everywhere all the time <laughs> wouldn't it work i i don't know i believe that um if there was increased connection to, i my belief is that if there was increased connection to nature <laughs> and genuine outlet for people to have grief for the loss of nature but also an outlet to have agency to protect it and do something meaningful eventually given a few more generations people would start turning to uh maybe i'm an idealistic but maybe sometimes we need idealistic people in this world um to 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 speak to the extreme maybe we would all start enjoying our relationship with nature more and and shopping less and feeding the machine that's ultimately killing nature less um i don't know maybe 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 i, maybe. I believe that i believe it i believe that i do believe also big big love to all of our bird watchers all of our insect lovers entomologists the lot of you are incredible inspirational yeah. holders of environmental knowledge you are full of wisdom you are full of joy you are full of love and hold on to that and share it with every person that you meet and know that you belong and everybody else belongs alongside nature if you've ever been pond dipping with a child the joy and the that spark within a child to see something find awe in it and ask how to protect it is the most beautiful thing and it exists within each and every one of us it really does. And I would just like to pass a thanks to the people that have supplied voice notes for this episode yeah, and hearing from them. You, and also to the, to the people around the world that do live with wildlife, that do coexist and do protect it. And also to those people that are living with wildlife, thank you for speaking up when you can. It's not often that these people around the world we do get to hear from for numerous different reasons. And when we do hear from them, they're not always heard and people don't always give them the respect and the time. So I just want to thank people that fight that fight for their own rights to live with wildlife in the way they do. Yeah. It's not easy. Not easy, is it? No. Nope. I, I live alongside Midgey in Scotland. Is that, can I get... <laughs> I live along other people. That's wildlife. That's nature. So I hope uh, I hope this episode about... Con Sorry if we went on a few rants, but it's going to happen on the show. Um, but This, this is a was heavy, heavy topic. It was a heavy one. But we wanted to start the, start the new series off by talking about conservation because it is different things that we've discussed on today's show are going to feed back into different topics that we're going to be talking about. So we wanted to kind of um, get that baseline going. Um, what can you expect from the next episode? We don't know yet, but it's going to be topics... We'll hone, in on something. we'll hone in on something probably a little bit more specific. That was a bit of a broad brush stroke to understand the landscape within which we exist as podcast hosts. Absolutely. Um, please follow us on social media, Into the Wild Pod on Twitter, podcast on Instagram. And we are now completely 
funded by ourselves currently that currently we are so if you would like to if you're ever fortunate enough to be in the situation where you have a few pennies or even the price of a coffee you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash into the world pod and you can just say tar everything that goes into that fund goes straight back into the podcast whether it's our time our post-production anything like that so we really really do appreciate it thanks so thanks much for listening. for listening and thanks Jinx. for being my co-host on the first new show you enjoyed I it to say that yeah i love it it's a joy. What did you want to say? Oh, no, we just said the same thing at the same time. I was just like, all right, let me say some of the wind-up stuff, Ryan. It's <laughs> just going to be a battle of talking. Uh, you can, uh, cool. Okay. Okay, what, what a smooth ends. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Badges are. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. You can find us on social media at Into the Wild Pod for Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com. <laughs>